Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we are the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School, and we're thrilled today to be hosting Ambassador Paul Wolfowitz, a member of our advisory board, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and the chairman of the U.S. Taiwan Business Council. Prior to all of these current positions that Ambassador Wolfowitz holds, he served for over three decades in public office, holding positions as diverse as U.S. Ambassador to India, Deputy Secretary of Defense, and Indonesia. President of the World Bank. What's that? Indonesia, not India. Oh, Indonesia. Sorry. sorry. Indonesia. Exactly. Indonesia. Deputy Secretary of Defense and President of the World Bank um, and served, I believe, in seven different administrations. Uh, Ambassador Wolfowitz is also a top-notch educator, having served as the dean and a professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies from 94 to 2001 and holds a PhD from the University of Chicago, my alma mater for law school, and a BA in mathematics from Cornell, Go Big Red. So, uh, Ambassador Wolfowitz, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate you being with us today. Um, and I thought we'd sort of start, you know, right at the top. Um, you know, we are uh, looking at potentially a new administration, whichever it ends up being, whether a, a second Trump term, or I think as most people believe, except for perhaps the president, um, uh, that it's likely to be a Biden presidency. Um, what do you think the top two or three defining national security and foreign policy challenges will be uh, for this new administration as we enter uh, the new year? Well, actually, I would have to put at the top of the list a domestic issue with huge foreign policy implications, and that's trying to bring this divided country together, because it's hard to see how we can be effective abroad if we are so divided at home. And I'm sure that's something that the Chinese in particular uh, and a lot of other people are figuring out how to take malign advantage of the fact that we don't seem to agree about much of anything. Right. Well, you know, that's an issue. That's a really important point. And, and assuming it is a President Biden, do you see a possibility for more a more bipartisan path going forward, uh, particularly given, you know, the likely divided control of the government, depending on what happens in the Georgia Senate runoff? Do you think it's possible for us to get back to a more bipartisan uh, and, and a, a less, you know, I don't even know what to call what we've had for the last four, maybe even, you know, six, eight years, this, this, this division and this, this anger directed at one another? You know, this may sound partisan, it's not meant to be, but I think it has to start with a recognition that wasn't there uh, 12 years ago. You said eight. Actually, I think in many ways it began that sort of infamous comment by Obama to McCain when they were trying to negotiate about health care. Mm. And he said, John, we won, you lost. But the worst of it was that we really kind of hit rock bottom, I think, with, and again, I don't mean this in a partisan way. Well, maybe it is a little bit. When Hillary Clinton talked about a basket of deplorables and dishonorables, telling half the country who voted for someone else that they, they weren't fit to be American citizens. It's not a, it's, it's a very unhealthy attitude. And I think one, re one reason I'm hopeful, and I like to be hopeful, I guess I'm congenitally disposed that way. I think first of all, if Biden wants to govern, if there's a Republican Senate, he's going to have to find some middle ground. Right. And secondly, I don't think he is, he is nearly is hyperpartisan as either Mrs. Clinton or President Obama. They yeah. may dislike that comparison, but I think he's much more open. It gets him in trouble sometimes. Uh, he's open to a lot of things. Right. I think it's a little unfair what Bob Gates said about, about him, that he's been wrong on everything. He hasn't been wrong on everything. 
He's been on many sides of many different things. That's probably as much his problem as anything. Mm. But it may be, he has a certain flexibility, which may be very helpful now. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, he did sound a, a, a very much a bipartisan and conciliatory tone um, in his uh, in his speech where he sort of uh, accepted, I realized, some amount of controversy, uh, you know, his new role. Uh, did you did you get a chance to see that speech at all? And, and did you have a sense of whether you thought that was a, a genuine sort of olive branch uh, to the Republicans? I think it was a genuine effort to be cautious and not to pour gasoline on the fire. Yeah. Uh, again, that's an important instinct. Uh, I hope he can restrain himself when, if President Trump starts going extreme, which there's a danger of now, and it's not going to help the country. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I actually, I'm interested to ask you about, and, and, and feel free to punt on this if, 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 if you're not comfortable talking about this, but we've seen some significant changes in the Department of Defense just in the last 48 hours. Um, you've served in uh, one of the most senior positions, the number two at the Department of Defense. Um, any concerns about, you know, the, the, in the last two months or last three, what might be the last two months of an administration, this significant number of changes, a very young, controversial figure at USDI, uh, a controversial figure at, at, at USD policy, and, and a new SECDEF uh, coming out of NCTC? I, it's very unsettling. Um, we just have to, nobody tried, no foreign actor tries to take extreme advantage of this now, but it's it's a very bad situation. Transitions are always bad for this country, um, yeah. but this won't be the worst one. To, just remember 1860, that was probably the worst in history, the uh, Lincoln transition. Uh, it was four months at that time. The last one that was, I think, four months was the Hoover-Roosevelt uh, transition, which was also prolonged the depression in important bad ways. Right. So it's a very tricky time, and I just a lot of cool heads are going to be needed to get through it, but there are big decisions that have to be made at the Pentagon, even in just the next short while. Right. And they're not really structured to do that at all or to carry people with them. I guess the one thing I would say, again, in my generally optimistic, hopeful mode, I think the military is well buttoned down. I think they will behave themselves. They're very, um, they may have a little trouble figuring out which civilian authority they're supposed to report to, but they will observe civilian authority. They always do. It is astounding that in this country, in 200 years, we're actually having that, that conversation. You know, it's kind of amazing. Well, let's talk about some of what's going on in the world um, and, and how you see what's taking place in the world and what, you know, what actors might take advantage of the current situation, whether it's the transition or anything else uh, or a new president. Um, you know, we've seen you know, a lot of action uh, in recent uh, weeks and months, and in fact, recent years um, in the Taiwan Straits, right? Since the election, uh, President Tsai in 2016, uh, the government of Beijing has continued to increase pressure, turning the screws. Um, uh, they've crossed the median line in the strait. Um, they've they've uh, violated uh, Taiwanese airspace repeatedly over and over again. Uh, what are what are the what are the scope of potentially U.S. responses to this continuing line of Chinese aggression uh, against Taiwan? You mean what should the U.S. be doing in response? Yeah. If you I, if you I, were in charge, what would you what would you advise the president? One thing I would say is don't view Taiwan in a vacuum. Take a look at what's happening in Xinjiang and the concentration camps. Take a look at what's happening in Hong Kong. I think it's if I were advising President-elect Biden, uh, I don't mean to jump the gun here if they're recounting votes, but anyway, I think his team should be. There's no reason he can't get out there and say something important about this 
banning of the opposition candidates for the Hong Kong legislature, because that's a very bad indication. It's a very bad step. And it may, to some extent, even be a test of whether Biden's going to, going to notice that sort of thing. Right. Uh, I, I think, you know, there's this, af what is, I don't know if it's an aphorism or a, a bad joke, but the way you boil a frog is slowly. <laughs> And the Chinese, I think, are going to indulge in, engage in that sort of tactic, testing a new administration. In, and it's going to be a whole new set of players, regardless, uh, seeing how they react to these small infractions. And if there's no reaction, I'm afraid they will push some more. Yeah. So I think that the, uh, to come to the issue that you brought up, which is this increasing level of provocative flights in the Taiwan Strait, and yeah. a lot of pretty ugly rhetoric. Uh, uh, I've written this, I believe strongly that the best way to prevent a war there is to make it clear that if they attack Taiwan, we will, we will, we will be part of that fight, which is basically what we did in Berlin, what, seven years ago, a uh, yeah. very long time ago, very successfully, yeah. not without a lot of tension, but that heroic move of Truman in the very beginning to do the airlift when people right. thought nothing could be done. And that sent a powerful signal to the Soviet Union. Well, Sylvester, I wonder about that. You know, has, we, we may lack the credibility, frankly, to make that claim uh, for a variety of reasons, right? Obviously, going as far back to the Obama administration and, and the decision to set a red line for Syria and then not enforce it. Uh, but then we've also seen, you know, President Trump be very cautious about using the military instrument of power. In fact, you know, perhaps as or more cautious even than President Obama. And we've seen a, a drumbeat of discussions for 12 years now of ending endless wars, pulling American troops home. There are those who suspect that the president's changes to the Department of Defense are in part in order to pull completely out of Afghanistan, pull completely out of Iraq and Syria. Um, do we think that a second Trump administration, which again, seems almost impossible, um, or a Biden administration, much, much more likely and almost, almost certain, uh, do we have any inkling that they would actually come to Taiwan's defense if it came to that? Because uh, I think we would all expect it. If you'd ask anybody, any of us, eight, 10 years ago, would the U.S. come to Taiwan's defense? There'd be no question. But given all of what's transpired, uh, are we is that a credible claim? And would uh, a Biden administration, do you think, or Trump, second Trump administration come to Taiwan's defense? Look, I, I think the Chinese would be extremely foolish to assume that we wouldn't. But that's why what we say is so important. The small things that we do are so important. In 1949-50, we sent some terrible signals to Stalin and the Chinese and North Koreans that we wouldn't do anything in Korea. And then lo and behold, we got into huge war there. Very bloody, awful war for everybody except maybe the Soviets. Um, uh, very bad for us, much worse for the Koreans of both sides and very bad for the Chinese. And they still remember that. So they, I, I, I think it's very important to react to small things, yeah. uh, not with military force, but with something that number one shows that you notice, number two shows that you have some resolve and try to remind people that yes, the American public doesn't want to get back into more endless wars, but that yeah. doesn't mean we will sit still for gross outright, outright aggression. And I think that's exactly the line that we have to figure out. So, you know, I think what you're essentially talking about is this idea that you've talked about before, as you've written about um, this idea of sort of bringing deterrence to bear on the situation. So let's say we see some more of these small incursions, the overflights, um, uh, you know, the, the, the threats against uh, candidates in Hong Kong, 
Uh, we've seen all sorts of Chinese repression. You talked about the concentration camps uh, where they put over a million Muslims in the Xinjiang province. What might the U.S. government do in response to uh, things that happen to Taiwan, but also in response to these, these atrocious human rights abuses against their own people um, and, and the Muslim population, the Uyghur population, uh, as well as what's happening in Hong Kong? What should we be doing now to those smaller things uh, to prevent them from thinking that we wouldn't respond to something bigger? Well, I'm going to advertise one of your upcoming webinars because you told me you're going to have some former Treasury officials in to talk about credible sanctions with with um, financial controls. I right. think we have kind of missed the boat here. Not maybe missed is too strong a word. We've used them very effectively, is my understanding, in Iran. We haven't really used them terribly much in the Hong Kong case. And a place to begin is to begin investigating how much of this assets that these wealthy communists in China have accumulated are invested in Australia and the United States and other open economies because they honestly don't believe it's going to be safe if they keep it in China. It's ironic. But they yeah. steal the money in China they invested here. And I think going after some of it and even just beginning to go after it so it begins to expose just how much wealth they have abroad. Uh, I wouldn't compare China with Malaysia except I do think it's important to note that a year or two ago, the Justice Department undertook this anti-kleptocracy initiative that exposed right. the billions of dollars that the then Prime Minister of Malaysia had stolen. And we actually did begin to go after it, not aggressively enough, in my opinion, it's still probably sitting in an illicit bank somewhere, but right. uh, it, it, it made a huge difference in the politics of Malaysia. And I think yeah. if I've seen estimates that the, um, the wealth of the, the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, it, personal wealth is in the range of half a trillion dollars. If that's right. anywhere close to true, that would be a fact that would be of great interest to the Chinese people and not something that the, the Beijing government would want us to go very far down that road. Right. I no, think we need to start. Absolutely. Important point. And you refer to the 1MDB scandal that, that really uh, had a significant impact uh, out there uh, in Malaysia. Um, I wonder whether, you know, is it time for us just to be upfront about our relationship with Taiwan and just toss the one China policy overboard? I mean, I recognize that that is not likely to happen in the Biden administration, but um, if you were doing it and, and you were to see these continued aggressions against Taiwan, would you recommend to the president, uh, a president who's willing to hear it, uh, that, that we should just dump the one China policy and, and admit what we've always known, which is that we really do support Taiwan and we defend its sovereignty? If I wanted to be rude, I'd give you a quiz on what the one China policy is. But the, to be very clear, we don't have a, our policy is not that Taiwan is part of China. Our right. policy is that we understand that the Chinese on both sides of the strait believe that um, they are the uh, rightful have government. Different, have, have different views on this issue and that they should be settled peacefully. And I keep coming back when I forget exactly what the wording is, as I may have just now, to say our China policy is that this issue between Taiwan and the mainland has to be settled peacefully. And right. it's much less likely to be settled peacefully after what Xi Jinping has done in Hong Kong. I mean, no sane Taiwanese is gonna be persuaded peacefully to join China. And I think we should keep reminding the people of China and the world of that fact, that the problem it doesn't exist because the US has been belligerent or unwilling to accept a peaceful solution the problem has been because of a very aggressive behavior by their leadership. And right. I think one very good thing that this, out of, I, 
we're in such a tentative mode. I think you have to say this outgoing administration has done have been two speeches by Matt Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, who speaks right. fluent Chinese, who has emphasized in his speeches repeatedly, and not just those two, that our problem is with the Beijing government, not with the people of China. Now, it's not easy to separate them because the information control in that country is so, it's something that the rulers in Orwell's 1984 would be jealous of. Uh, right. It's, it's, I call it, um, Repression with high-tech characteristics. Uh, they're going back to Maoism with high-tech characteristics, and it's very scary. Right. So you have to try to figure out how to, how to penetrate that. But by the way, I would also put that on the list of things that we need to do a better job of. I think uh, there are better ways to begin to get a message to the people of China that mm. their government is taking them down the wrong road. Not right. one that's good for them, not one that's good for the world. I wonder whether we have that same problem in Iran, right? A lot of people have suggested that, the, that you know, one of our challenges with Iran is that our sanctions policy, which has been extremely effective um, and one that we helped enforce uh, when, when the Obama administration wasn't willing to do it um, in the House. Um, I wonder whether, whether there's a play like that to be made in Iran, which is that there's this popular sentiment that the Iranian people really are with us and that they're fairly westernized and it's their repressive regime that's the problem. Have we been effective there in carrying that message to the Iranian people? And if not, what might we do on that side of the uh, of the world um, to do the same kind of thing you're talking about here with respect to China? Don't feel expert enough about Iran to be give you a good answer, but I think the answer probably comes down to the fact that we could do a better job. Um, yeah. And that uh, there's a lot to be said about the, our country, even with all of its troubles, as a way of dealing with differences and with minorities that this government in Tehran doesn't can't do. And I think right. the Iranian people know that and are susceptible to it. But uh, I would also say we should emphasize not just this nuclear issue, which uh, isn't the only problem, but I think should put more emphasis on what Iran is doing around the region and the trouble that it's stirring up. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm interested in talking about China and sort of the Middle East and then sort of the connection between the two. And by the way, for folks in the audience, I see some of you already got questions out there in the chat. Uh, but just know that in about 15 minutes or so, we'll be turning your questions in the chat. So please keep putting them in there. We'll uh, we'll get to them. And I see we have almost 80 people in the room now uh, with us, uh, Ambassador Wolfwood. So, so, you know, China's made an effort to expand its its, uh, its influence around the globe, um, in particular in the Middle East, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, like it is globally, um, is is uh, is moving out. They've also engaged in various maritime and military partnerships. Uh, how concerned should we be about China's growing interest in the Middle East as a source for energy resources uh, to help sort of fuel its economy and its continued development and growth? Well, you know, back in um, when, the Obama administration first started announcing this pivot to East Asia, yeah. which I believe was in the last years of the first term, 2011, 2012. It's striking if you go back and look at what they were saying at the time and what they've written about it. Uh, they talked about pivoting to Asia and, and rebalancing away from the Middle East, which really right. was right. Nice, nice word for retreating, right. um, without seeming to notice that our number one ally in the region, Japan, whole economy dependent on energy from the Middle East and our number one competitor adversary, whichever term you like better, China, it was almost equally dependent on energy from the Middle East. So it's a, 
it's a vulnerability for both Japan and for China. It's a vulnerability that can restrain China if we continue to play a significant role in the region. It's a vulnerability that can, that can seriously threaten Japan if we are seen to be abandoning the region. Right. And, you know, I think Trump was neither here nor there. He was tough on Iran, which our friends in the region liked. He wasn't that tough when it came to actually doing something about attacks on Saudi facilities, as I think you alluded to. Right. Although he sort of made up for that in an odd way, unplanned way, by the um, assassination of Qasem Soleimani, which was a bold move, which I think secured some credibility for us. Absolutely. But uh, all of this talk about getting out of endless wars, and I'm not for getting into endless wars, and I'm not for staying in them, but I think it's a little bit like the deterrence thing. If you want to stay out of endless wars, it's important to try to end them on the right terms. And That's walking right. away from Afghanistan and Iraq is not, a, is either one of them is gonna have bad consequences. No, and we've seen, we've seen what so walking out of Iraq does, exactly. Yeah, it did. And, and uh, there's a constant temptation, understanding to keep going in that direction. But I think, I would agree with people who say we can't expend all our resources in that troubled region. We shouldn't expect, uh, I, I guess I would say myself, I thought it would go better after Saddam Hussein was gone than it has gone. I, part of that I think is that when it was starting to go better in Libya, for example, it might've gone better in Syria and we walked away. And I think that was again, a mistake. Right. So the question is, is it possible? It's important to engage because our influence is is unique in its magnitude and its basic goodwill. I don't mean to pat ourselves on the back, but people tend to trust us more than they trust Russians or Chinese. And that's an advantage we have. But I think the question is, can we influence things in a direction that is positive from the point of view of the people of the region, the interests of the United States, without getting too deeply involved or so deeply involved that it's the American people won't support it or we can't afford it. It's right. a challenge. It is. It is. Do we think that the American people have more of a willingness uh, to sort of go down that road? I, I do. I do wonder whether part of it is leadership, right? It, you know, you have to have leadership that that calls for action, that brings the American people to the fight. Um, they're not going to come. They're not going to come on their own. You know, they have to be led to that. And I worry that you know, for the last 12 years, at least, we've had leaders who don't have an interest in in, in taking that leadership on and saying, look, these fights matter fighting our enemies overseas ensures they don't come here and fight us here. Uh, we have had, you know, 20 years of relative security uh, after 9-11, in part because we took the fight to the enemy overseas. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's not, a, there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion about that in the public space. Um, do you, do you share that concern? I mean, I, it seems to me that we are on the verge, whether it's under Donald Trump in the next three months or under Joe Biden in the next year, uh, we are on the verge of a all out withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, how much? How much does that worry you in terms of the terrorist threat? It worries me both in terms of the terrorist threat and in terms of growth of Chinese influence in the region. Mm. And the Chinese are working very actively. And of course, I shouldn't say of course, but I think it's not, not surprising. They're the number one customer for Saudi Arabia and the other oil producers. They spend a lot of money in those countries. They have huge economic influence. They make no secret of their being credible people, unlike those unreliable Americans. I think, I think they are working very steadily and methodically to strengthen their position in the region. 
And if they can say, look, the Americans abandoned the Afghans after making this big pretense of coming to their assistance, but we're still around. We're not afraid to send our uh, rare, rare earth miners into Afghanistan and steal their resources. We're doing that. I think, by the way, in some respects, the attacks on India recently were meant to shore up Pakistan and say a message to the Pakistanis that when the Americans are gone, which they will be, uh, you right. don't have to worry about India because we're the, here to protect you in their place. Uh, so there's a lot of influence they can wield in ways that might surprise us. And I, I'll mention something that keeps me up a little bit at night, but it may, it may yeah. be an exaggerated worry. But back in 1970, people thought the Soviets were in Egypt to stay forever. And I remember when Henry Kissinger as a national security advisor made this rather bold statement on background, but it was pretty quickly revealed who had said it, that we were going to expel them from the Middle East, expel the Soviets from the Middle East. And I, th I thought at the time being a young smart ass whippersnapper that who the hell does he think he's gonna expel the Soviets? Well, three years later, the Egyptians expelled the Soviets. Why? Because we had shown that we could protect them from Israel, deliver Israel on things that mattered, and that if they wanted to do business in the Middle East, the Soviets were irrelevant. I'd hate to see us in that same position in, in the Persian Gulf with respect to China. It's, it's worth thinking about, I think. No, absolutely. And, and funny enough, uh, the Soviets are back in the Middle East in a big way, in part because the Russians we are. left that vacuum. Yeah, the Russian, well, the yes. Russian, well, I mean, you know, Vladimir Putin is no, an unresolved Soviet in his own mind in any event. I, look, I... I worry a lot about what they're doing and we've allowed them to get away with things that they probably never thought they would get away with. Um, and we could have stopped a lot of things. You know, at one point, President Trump was talking about safe zones in Syria. I think safe zones are exactly what we did successfully in Northern Iraq back in 1991, which is basically using American air power to protect people on the ground who are fighting for their interests and advancing our interests at the same time. And you, we talked a minute ago about leadership. I think, yes, it's important to have leaders who explain the stakes involved, but it's also important to have leaders who can explain how we can, instead of pandering to the fear of endless wars, explain how we can deal with these things without endless wars and using economic right. instruments as well. Right. Well, of course, but, one you know, of the At the end of the day, if you look at the great changes in, in American, in when the U.S. is has decided to re-engage, so to speak. The people who were responsible were Joseph Stalin and Ayatollah Khomeini. I mean, it was what happened in Korea and what happened in Iran in Tehran that suddenly there was a reversal. And I, if I were advising Xi Jinping, I would tell him, look at those cases. Don't, don't overreach yourself. Don't right. get too confident in your own power that you provoke the Americans to do something that we can't handle. Right. We Chinese can't handle. Yeah. I do see a number of uh, number of uh, questions already in the chat, uh, so let me let me just go to a few of those. I see John Norton Moore, uh, obviously one of the uh, key founders of Nash, the National Security Law Movement uh, down at UVA, and now with us at our advisory board here at uh, at NSI. Uh, Professor Moore asks, um, you know, with respect to Iran and the nuclear agreement, would it be useful for the Senate to take some action to sort of get ahead of uh, a potential return to the joint plan of action uh, by the Biden, by the Biden administration? Uh, he says, would it be helpful if you had a resolution that got both Democrat and Republican support saying that any new agreement needed to be submitted to the Senate as a treaty um, and, uh, and that uh, any new agreement shouldn't have an end date, which would allow Iran to go nuclear um, and ought to also include uh, some limits on ballistic, their ballistic missile program? Do you think there's one, 
are those advisable moves by uh, by a by the Senate, hopefully a Republican Senate trying to get a little bit of Democratic support? Um, or is that is that not going to even have an impact? Would it matter even if they did that right sort of what you know the Senate does strongly worded letters uh, to the uh, to the president in the form of a, of, a, of a one house resolution? First of all, I want to give a shout out to John Norton, for whom I haven't seen in quite a, too many years, but a wonderful man. Uh, so glad he's on your board. Um, I think it's a great, I don't know how, I haven't thought enough to offer views on the practicalities, but I do think that if we want to have a move toward more bipartisanship, and if there is a Republican leadership, if the Senate is led by Republicans, then I think it's very important to try to stake out a position that can be the basis for some serious negotiation. Um, otherwise, I think there will be a tendency to simply sort of go headlong back to where we were with JCPOA without remedying any of its defects, and they were considerable in my view. And uh, it would be a way to say, look, there's an opportunity here for a diplomatic success. Uh, Trump laid some groundwork for you by withdrawing from the agreement, but you can go back to something that is better than what we had before. Right. By the way, so I you... would make this give the same. No, I'll let, I, we'll come back to it later. But I would give the same advice with respect to the World Health Organization. Interesting. So you, so you do see a potential for an Iran nuclear deal that could be agreed to by the United States and that would actually be in the U.S.'s interest as opposed to the deal that was struck uh, by the prior administration? Uh, yes, I certainly a better one than what we had before. Whether it's going to really produce a result that is worth the price of it is, I'm not prepared to say at this point. Uh, we right. really had enormous pressure on them. We have enormous pressure on them now. We should get something truly valuable in, as a result. Right. And it, it may be as much as anything on the non-nuclear side of the issues as it is on the nuclear ones. Right. Uh, Norm Rule, who served uh, as the National Intelligence Manager for Iran um, and a longtime CIA officer, um, uh, says excellent presentation. Um, he, he wants to talk about U.S. and efforts to roll back Iran in the region. You talked about uh, dealing with Iran's uh, regional manipulation. He talks about rolling back Iran in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, rolling back China and Asia, rolling back Turkey and Syria, Libya, perhaps Eastern Med. Um, and his point, I think, is that sanctions don't seem to work in rolling back all these key actors, whether it's Iran or Turkey or China. He says diplomacy doesn't seem to work, uh, certainly hasn't worked with Turkey. Um, he's interested to know what, what would work. If sanctions don't do it, diplomacy doesn't do it, we can't really roll back Iran or Turkey or China. What will work to roll back anyone or some number of these powers in the regions in which they're, they're, they're tending to get their tentacles out there? I think it's a little premature to say that the sanctions on Iran haven't made them more open to a negotiation. I mean, if you say they haven't, you, they haven't by themselves changed Iranian policy is one thing, but it does seem to me it gives us leverage for a negotiation that would be different from anything we've tried before. Uh, we, we tried negotiating without sanctions and now we're trying sanctions without negotiating. Maybe the answer is that we ought to put the two together in a more constructive way. I also think that uh, he mentioned Yemen. Uh, I think, I don't know, look, this is another reason why people want to stay away from the Middle East. It's so complicated that there's no idea what, what a reasonable outcome would be. But what is clear is that it's a humanitarian disaster. 
And I think that uh, we ought to be observation without much policy backup. I don't know what, how, we, how you do it, but I do think that um, some more restraint by our friends in the region is probably part of the answer. Probably more of a raising of international awareness, more sending consideration of things like peacekeeping forces, not Americans, but peacekeeping forces. Now that's something that um, I think go back to both presidents, Bush, uh, I think we could have left without any longer term American military commitment, unfortunately. When it came time to leave, we had a new administration and they decided they were going to shoot for a higher bar. But that's something to be said about transitions. George H.W. Bush was extremely careful not to commit to anything that would bind President Clinton beyond Bush's term in office. And right. I think the mistakes in Somalia were made afterwards. George W. Bush, maybe a, let me focus on this example. We were in the middle of, uh, I may have my timing not quite right, but, but I think we were already in Iraq and already preoccupied with obviously huge military issues. And yet this criminal, Samuel Taylor was running amok in Liberia and President George W. Bush decided this was something that we couldn't simply sit still for. So he put together an agreement with the West African countries that if we went in and settled things down for a few months, they would come in behind us, which they did. And they made a deal with the UN peacekeepers that if they did their job at the front end, the UN would come in behind them. I think a right. little bit more of that kind of setting the scene for others to come in. And I, I think one of our big mistakes in Libya is having gotten rid of Gaddafi, we walked away from the place completely when probably a modest peacekeeping force could have buttressed what was a very favorable political environment. Right. There were two very simple, more creativity in, in, in that regard with the Yemenite pay some dividends. Interesting. Right, so sort of be, being there for the aftermath and, and, and really trying to sort of help find a, a path forward and, and having and partnering with other folks to help us get to that point, I think is interesting. On the flip side of that, one of our guests asks, um, you know, that de says decades ago, you worried about the prospect of a consortium of Russia, Iran, and China working in concert together against U.S. interests. Uh, this questioner asks uh, whether you're more or less worried today that that group of three, Russia, China, and Iran, might come together uh, to unite against U.S. interests. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I said that decades ago, but I'd, I'd love to get the reference. That's how they are. That's how they... No, I really am. Um, but the answer is yes, I am. I'm very concerned. I think, unfortunately, these three countries, I mean, there's been a lot of misleading talk about Axis. The, the German Axis tripartite pact wasn't much of an alliance. They were betrayed by Japan, actually. And then the Axis of evil was a nice turn, I don't know, even, it was a turn of phrase that got a lot of attention, but it, it was three countries, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea that really had very little in common except their pursuit of weapons of mass destruction. Right. 
But here you have three countries that have a huge common interest in preventing American promotion of democracy in their countries. That leads to another common interest in discrediting democracy in the West. So I don't know whether Putin was taking sides in our last election. I sure as heck believe that he wanted to make our elections look as disreputable as possible. He must be really staying up night, drinking extra vodka to celebrate what's going on here now. It's to their, they, they love it. And then the third thing they do have in common, which is a, cuts a little bit differently for each of them, Every one of them would like to see the United States expelled from the Persian Gulf if they could achieve it. Right. Two of them are producers. One of them is a consumer. It leads, so there's a tension there. But I think when it comes to the American role in Saudi Arabia particularly, it's not something that any of them like to see. So I think it's possible for them in, in odd ways to gang up on us. And the fact that Russia is running amok in Syria may benefit the Chinese in the Persian Gulf, either intentionally or to some extent by coordination. But right. the fact that we have these three countries that are antagonistic, have deep concerns about the example we might set for their people and some common geostrategic interests is something that we need to worry about or think about. Right. So I've got three questions on the Middle East and I'm gonna pivot back to, back to Asia because we've got lots of questions about Asia. So. Um, on the Middle East, um, uh, one of our guests asks uh, whether uh, whether forcible regime change in Iran is is virtually inevitable. Um, it doesn't seem like we're really been effective at using uh, the, the effective carrot and stick approach, and so wonders whether we must get to forcible uh, uh, regime change. And then second, um, Harold Moss, one of our visiting fellows at NSI, asks um, sort of the flip side of that question, right? That sanctions seem to have uh, the, the aim of destabilizing Iranian leadership, and perhaps we're even being somewhat successful at that. If that's the case, and given that nature of nature avoids a, a void and a vacuum, um, do you see a risk that strategy is China and Russia coming in uh, to sort of buttress up the Iranian regime um, and really filling our role in that way in that region? So, so two sort of flip sides of, of a similar question. So I guess the second part of the question is, could the Russians do in Iran what they've done in Syria, basically? Exactly. Um, I think... Um, I mean, they are selling S-400s to the Iranians. And I think that gets, I mean, if one's going to think about a possible military scenario in Iran, I think it's much more likely to involve a red line with respect to nuclear weapons than it's going to involve regime. I don't like that word regime change, to be honest. It's, it sort of implies replacing one bad regime with another regime. But I think the, um, let me put it this way, Saddam Hussein's hold on his people was almost entirely through terror. There were a few that signed up because they really thought he was a great leader, but I don't think too many, most of them were terrified. I think Iran has a much more organic, if you want to use that word, relationship with the country, and that there would be much more resistance to an American military action if the goal was a political one. But um, I think, unfortunately, I think you have to reserve a credible military threat in the event that they actually cross a serious red line with respect to developing nuclear weapons. And I think it's a great danger to the whole world if that happens. Right. Um, so, yeah, I guess the other part of the question I've sort of answered also with, might Russia get more deeply right. involved? Um, I don't think the Russians are terribly popular in Iran to tell you the truth. And I don't think that uh, 
if if an Iranian regime has to rely on the Russians doing in Iran what they did in Syria, I think they're finished. To be honest, I think yeah. that's regime change right there. Right, and the Russians probably don't have the capacity, frankly, at this point to really sustain that level of involvement. And that's why I corrected you when you said the Soviets. Soviets. It, it is right. Russia, which is a much smaller country. That's right. Much, but they're punching way above their weight now. Yeah. Partly because yeah. we let them. No, and, and we've, in fact, in a lot of ways, we've magnified their power by sort of treating them like a, like a you know, whatever it is, a 12 foot tall monster. Yeah, the, so, need to get the height ahead, right. They, they are a monster, but not 12 feet tall. Right. So, uh, Mario Kanji, uh, our director of international programs, who runs our summer program in Italy with Justice Gorsuch, uh, he's also a SICE grad from 03, um, asks whether we've lost the battle for hearts and minds in Africa when it comes to China. And if so, what can we do to recover? I think that's a very important question. I don't think we have to tell you the truth. Um, for one thing, I don't think the Chinese play their hand terribly well. I mean, they, they're great at wooing dictators for obvious reasons through corruption. But I think many of the people of Africa recognize that they're predators. Uh, most of those leaders aren't terribly popular. If we're really gonna talk hearts and minds, I think part of the question is, we need more African governments that really are responsive to their people. And yeah. if we keep Not having corrupt. corrupt dictators there, then we're in danger of losing. That's but right. in the meantime, uh, I believe, I haven't, I can't say that I'm current on these opinion polls, but it wasn't that long ago when Sub-Saharan Africa, to distinguish it from Northern Africa, which is a different story, but Sub-Saharan right. Africa was the region of the world most favorably inclined toward the United States. And I think it may surprise people to hear that. I do think a significant part of that was George W. Bush's PEPFAR program and our very active role in combating HIV AIDS, which is purely humanitarian. And people who say that, well, purely humanitarian is a waste of taxpayers' money, it's not. It can, I saw what a difference it made in Indonesia when we came to their rescue after the tsunami. I've seen what it does in Africa where, where they see that we are one of the few donors that really cares about the people and really does something. So, uh, and I'd say one more thing, and it's a curious phenomenon that I'm trying to learn more about. My impression is that unlike um, uh, trying to, well, let me not say unlike, one thing the Chinese do that's not, not making them popular in Africa isn't, instead of sending robber barons to steal the resources, they send huge numbers of Chinese workers to get them out of China, probably right. for one thing. And right. they steal the resources that way. And this is leading to a kind of colonization of Africa, which yes. I don't think goes down well with, with the native Africans. Right. But, but we are talking about a resource, incredibly resource rich part of the world. We're talking about millions of people, a very young population that's gonna keep growing inevitably through demography. And I think one where sooner or later, maybe it's later than I had hoped when I was spending time there during, when I was at the World Bank, I got very hopeful because if you looked around Africa, you see, could see there was maybe a third of the countries that were the basket cases that made it to the cover of The Economist. There right. were a third that were sort of muddling along and there were a third that were doing very well. I could name a few, but I, most of even the ones that we're doing relatively well, like Rwanda, have started re 
regressing. I think partly because the leaders begin to think of themselves as irreplaceable. Right. That's certainly, I think, a problem with Kagame and a problem with Museveni. Yeah. Uh, and I think, but I do believe that younger population in, in Africa is going to push more and more to enjoy the kind of um, political and social relationships that they see here in the United States. And there's a huge African diaspora here now that reaches back to the continent and has an influence as well. Yeah, no, it's funny you mentioned so Museveni. Like that one yeah. Laws. yeah, it's funny you mentioned Museveni. My, my father was in, uh, was in college with him. They, uh, my dad actually got a bad reputation amongst my mom's family because he used to hang out and drink beer with the, with the, with the local guys. Uh, and, and Museveni was one of his drinking buddies because uh, they wanted to like, talk politics. And so that's uh, funny what a small world we live in. Um, Lynn Wells, uh, who served at DOD also, um, asked whether you see the Senkakus uh, becoming an area of increased uh, tension during the transition period. Uh, to the next presidency. Hi, Lynn. Yeah, Lynn and I worked together for four years. He did some amazing work with me. Um, I guess every tension point is potentially tricky right now. Um, for some reason, I would think the Chinese would be more focused on uh, trying to influence the attitudes in Taiwan, uh, try to scare the people of Taiwan, not act in a way with Japan that further solidifies the US-Japan alliance, but that attributes the rationality to them that they seem to ignore often. So right. I think the Senkakus in a way, in Taiwan in a much bigger way, are viewed in Beijing as tests of American credibility. And if they can show us as unable to deliver on what we seem to have promised, uh, then our alliances will be weakened. And I know people say Trump did a lousy job with allies, but they tend to ignore that most countries in Asia, I think it's fair to say, certainly Japan and Australia, liked him better because he was standing up to China and he was a quote, tough guy, whether you agree with that assessment or not. But I think right. I think we have a lot of repair work to do with NATO and NATO has a lot of self repair work to do. But I think this quad mechanism in East Asia, including India, Australia, Japan, and the United States <clears throat> really is something that should be built on and not walked away from. Yeah. Is there an opportunity to, to you know, we've often thought about India as the potential bulwark against uh, Chinese aggression in the region, and if we can just build that the right relationship. Is there a, more of a hope for that now that we see that the Indians may be realizing what a threat China poses, not just to the region, but to them in particular with this recent border dispute? Or are they still going to continue to play footsie with the Chinese uh, as the large player in the region? You know, I think, and this is true of many countries in the region, maybe even to some extent Japan, none of them want to have to choose sides. I, certainly India traditionally has taken too much pride in its so-called non-aligned posture. Non-aligned, right. And uh, so I'm not sure it moves them beyond that. I think it certainly makes them interested in a better relationship with the United States, but I don't think it's going to make them willing to challenge China in a serious way. But yeah. uh, 
that I wouldn't rule that out if, if the Chinese overstep their bounds. I still think that unfortunately, um, the huge elephant in the room when it comes to Indian foreign policy is still Pakistan. It's very hard to get away from it. Right. And that's why I think to some extent what China was doing with that, those border incursions was sending a signal to Pakistan and saying, you know, don't fold. We're here to keep you engaged Interesting. against India, uh, which Interesting. is very unfortunate. Yeah, no, certainly. So Dmitry Alperovich, uh, the founder of uh, CrowdStrike and uh, one of our advisory board members, um, now also, by the way, the founder of a, of a new policy accelerator called Silverado, um, asks, um, what do you see as the best case scenario for the future of U.S.-China relations over the next, you know, two, three decades, uh, given the highly likely reality that the CCP is not going anywhere and the nationalistic ambitions of the Chinese people are likely to grow? Um, so do we, do we worry that, uh, what, what do you see as, what's the best case scenario as this plays out? Well, the best case scenario would be to go forward from now to done. <laughs> I mean, uh, and it's, you say Xi Jinping is going to be here forever, uh, be around forever. He certainly ensconced himself pretty solidly. He's also taken responsibility for pretty much everything that goes wrong, which is why I think um, we don't, look, we don't know what Chinese really think. They don't say it to one another, much less to us. But I think uh, if there's another pandemic-like episode in China, for example, I think Xi Jinping would be in serious trouble. And he may have gone really? out of this one lucky, but uh, I think there's a lot of unhappiness. There was a lot of unhappiness with what was seen as is bringing this on the Chinese people. Um, so, and is that a problem for him or for the party? Do you think? I think it's to be honest. I think it's more a problem for him. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the burdens he takes by becoming emperor for life. Uh, it's, uh, and, and the danger to him is not from the population at large, it is from the party. I see. Uh, it wasn't the, the people of the Soviet Union that threw out Khrushchev, it was the, the Central Committee of the Party. Yeah. Uh, and it was basically because of, should remind Xi Jinping if they like Russian models. They seem to be trying to not to do what Gorbachev did fine, but don't do what Khrushchev did, which was he became an adventurist. And that was viewed by the more cautious members of the Politburo as a dangerous thing. And he was out. So I think change in China at the top is not going to come from the people for a long time, although we could hope for it. And I think we could do a slightly better, much better job probably of trying to penetrate that great Chinese firewall and get some facts to the Chinese people, which is why, for example, I uh, think it would be so important to put sanctions on the, go after the wealth of the Politburo members and particularly the Politburo members, sorry, but also the Central Committee members and expose in different ways in China, just how much money has been stolen and where it's been put. Yeah. One of our guests asks about sort of this potential sort of new Cold War with China and asks whether, um, you know, given the current age of technology and, and the, the way that major unexpected breakthroughs can happen very rapidly and the importance of public-private partnerships, uh, how do you see this particular strategic component, the, 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 the growth of technology, uh, playing in the situation between the U.S. and China? And are we doing enough to really mobilize a whole-of-nation effort against China? Are we doing, do, you know, some... 
some conservatives even said what we really need is a national industrial policy. And the questioner doesn't ask this, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. Do we need a national industrial policy when it comes to uh, confronting China? I don't think sort of across the board industrial policy is what we need. I think we need to maintain a competitive economy, which maybe I'm too ideological about this, but I think industrial policy means the opposite. It means too much control by bureaucrats who don't actually know what innovation is about or what they're doing. But I do think in important key sectors, and I would say telecommunications is one of them. And I think the fight over who's gonna dominate 5G is really in many ways the most important foreign policy battle of the, pre of the present, of, the, of now and the next few years, because it's going to decide, I think, who, who controls this critical space, yeah. which also ultimately is gonna have a big impact on how people get their information. Yeah. how Chinese in particular get their information, but also how American, how Americans and Europeans get it. And uh, it's have, gonna have a big impact on new industries like artificial intelligence. Right. Uh, so I think, I think it's incredibly important to be competitive. I'm not sure the best, yeah. that industrial policy is even the answer to that because when I think about Huawei, I don't think we can out-subsidize the Chinese government. Uh, our system doesn't work that way well, and it's yeah. not the best way to innovate. But I think we need, um, in many ways, a more competitive environment in telecom than we have yeah. right now. So two questions. Really, I mean, it's, from, it's, yeah. it's a sad observation that no, the U.S. Right. isn't in this competition at all. If anybody is going to compete with Huawei now, it's Nokia or Samsung or, or Ericsson. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, have we, have, one, from my, from my end, have we lost that battle? And then a question from our audience, um, e whether we've lost it or not, um, should we cut our information and intelligence sharing relationships uh, with countries that implement Huawei 5G networks? The answer to the last one is probably yes. And I think the threat wow. to do so is effective. But the, um, uh, I think it's a mistake to view this as primarily an intelligence issue. Uh, then it goes into the black hole that nobody can really comment on or understand. If you right. think of it more as a privacy issue, if you think what happens if a foreign government, a hostile foreign government has access to everybody's data because everybody is using the internet that they have this dominant position in. And they can not only steal information and use it maliciously, but they can withhold access to, to a vital service either at times or on individuals that are critical. Um, I don't, I mean, there was this controversy about something Jack Dorsey did on Twitter. Uh, if Jack Dorsey were a communist party official playing around with a social media that was to which a few hundred million Americans were addicted to put it mildly, uh, that would be much scarier than what Jack Dorsey does as an independent uh, CEO of a company that has to testify before Congress if there's an issue. So right. I worry much more about that sort of broader impact on society as a whole. And I think that's what yeah. we're aiming at. Okay. So we have a couple more questions that have come in about uh, about the Middle East. So I might, thought I might turn back to that. Um, uh, one, uh, Christopher Melling from BYU Law School asked whether you can comment on uh, the recent normalization of, rela of relations between uh, Israel, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, we've now seen Sudan. Um, uh, do you think that this was due to President Trump's sort of hardline, what some call a hardline stance, is his, his very, very favorable to Israel stance? Um, and, and do you have a sense whether that means that President Trump's Middle East uh, 
foreign policy has been more effective uh, than President Obama's uh, when it comes to uh, that region and, and addressing some of these longstanding issues? Well, I think, uh, I think it's attributable most of all to Ayatollah Khamenei. Hmm. I mean, it's most of all the Iranians who brought it about. And I think Trump and the Israelis were clever to take advantage of it. And actually the UAE was clever to take advantage of it also, which is the one side of this whole yeah. thing that makes me uncomfortable because it's, it has led to us supporting Haftar in Libya, which I don't think we should be doing. It's led to us, I think, turning a blind eye to what's happening in Yemen, which I'm not sure we should be doing. Yeah. But, but it's, we're in the bazaar and the, the bazaaris have a big say in what deals get made. But I think, um, I do think that another big contributor was in fact Obama's outreach to Iran, which scared the hmm. bejesus out of people in, in the Gulf. Uh, so it was an unintended consequence of, of what I think was a mistake in policy. When Obama said, I think in his last year, the Saudis have to learn to share the Gulf with Iran, that must have sent shivers down the spines of people in Iran, Riyadh. Right. And I'm not, I don't hold a brief for the Saudis, and I realize what a difficult partner ally they can be. And the human rights abuses are a big part of what bothers me. But... Right. Um, you know, I, I will revert to Churchill's famous phrase when he was asked, well, what will you do if Hitler invades the Soviet Union? He said, well, I will find a good word to say in the House of Commons. Uh, sorry, if Hitler were to invade hell, I would find a good word to say for the devil himself. Right. And of course, he came out immediately to support the Soviet Union. Well, that was a life or death struggle. And, but to come out for Winston Churchill to support Joseph Stalin was a bigger leap than for the United States to find a way to work with the difficult Saudi Arabia. We have to do it. Right. Well, look, Ambassador, I think that'll that'll wrap it for us. I see a few more questions in the chat, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So thank you so much for being here with us this evening. And thanks to our audience for being part of our day. Uh, please join us for three great events we've got coming in the near future. First, one week from today on Thursday, November 19th, from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern, as part of our Tech 2020-21 initiative, we'll be hosting SCC Chairman Ajit Pai in a conversation about preserving American leadership and promoting innovation. And he'll be hosted by Bloomberg Technologies Amazing Anchor, Emily Chang. Uh, second on Tuesday, December 1st from 1 to 2 p.m. Also, our second event that uh, Ambassador Wolfitz mentioned uh, on the Treasury Department's role in national security. Uh, we'll have some amazing senior former Treasury Department leaders. Um, and then finally, uh, on December 3rd from 5 to 6 p.m., our next NATSEC nightcap uh, with Elliot Abrams, the Special Representative for Iran and Venezuela at the Department of State. Uh, we'll discuss foreign policy, diplomacy, and the growing relationship between Tehran and Caracas. So for any of those events, you can sign up on our website at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. And please don't forget to check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter at Mason Natsec. Check out our awesome podcast, Fault Lines and Iron Butterfly, available on iTunes, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else. Ambassador Wolfitz, awesome to have you. Thank you for being part of our advisory board. And thanks, audience, for being here. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks, Jamil. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.